The Leonard and Bina Ellen Art Gallery presents Constitutions, an exhibition curated by Swampna Tamhain with Indian artists Rajashri Goody, Sajan Mani, Birinthar Yadav, Prajakta Pothnis, and Sora Pura in their first exhibition in Canada. As India celebrates 75 years of decolonization, these five artists of a similar generation address and complicate the oppressive social hierarchy of caste discrimination, politics of labor, and the post-truth state. In their works, there are threads of poetry and literature, a sensation of disembodiment, the transition of body to tool, and the representation of what the body retains, absorbs, and discards. The exhibition is presented in Montreal until January 22, 2022. For more information, visit the gallery's website at ellengallery.concordia.ca. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. We are your hosts, Sky Gooden. And Lauren Wetmore. Sky, should we announce our tremendous news right off the top? Oh, yes. Uh, well, yes, we should talk about um, applications being now open for the next Momus Emerging Critics Residency, uh, which is uh, intended for an Indigenous exclusive cohort. This time, uh, it'll take place across two discrete weeks in February and March and is being led by the incredible Dr. Leuli Ashragi. Yes. So it's called Writing Relations, Making Futurities, Global Indigenous Art Criticism. Um, and as Sky said, there's going to be two sessions. The first session is called the Great Ocean Session, and that will be February 7th to 11th. Um, and that is in... New Zealand time zone. Um, and then the second session is the Turtle Island and Arctic session, and that will be March 14th to 18th. And that is within, as it says, a Turtle Island slash Arctic time zone. Um, and yeah, we're really excited to receive applications. Yes. Uh, we should make a note that tuition is being covered for everyone accepted into the program. And we've got some incredible partners we're working with to make that possible. Um, deadline is December 12th. I should also say that if you have any questions at all, you can please contact me at residency at momus.ca. What a weird week it's been. There have been so many famous art world people just dying. And I know you've got some <laughs> strong opinions. <laughs> about how we could best memorialize those people. Do you want to go ahead and just have a moment here? <laughs> I don't at all. Why are you setting me up for this? <laughs> I think I, I very privately expressed my um, kind of dismay and then like growing disgust at the way that people are sort of instrumentalizing other people's passings in order to position themselves uh, mm -hmm. close to celebrity. But... Um, but what's the alternative? I've genuinely been trying to think my way through this. Like, you know, among yeah. the towering figures that died in the past two weeks is Dave Hickey, who I actually had a relationship with, and he was sort of formative. But I, you're right. Like, it's inappropriate and kind of gross to make hay of that in a memorialize, memorializing um, post or I don't know. Okay, so I've been thinking about it, too, because I guess – Maybe my issue is a certain like prudishness around social media, mm. which is to say that 
it would seem that, yeah, social media is where we are collectively sharing large life events. Um, mm. And so in that sense, it makes absolute sense that you would, you know, express grief or excitement or remembrance over that kind of platform. Um, th but that's just not like, <laughs> it's just like not a world I'm willing to enter yet, <laughs> let's say. <laughs> um, and, and I do think that, you know, there, there are, uh, there are certain genuine ways to exercise that. And you know it when you see it. Well, it, it links up in a way with this book of Harry Dodges. You see an artist sort of struggling with their own sort of misanthropic tendencies or um, Ludditeism, <laughs> resistance <laughs> to tech, social media as an extension of that being like mm -hmm. a very suspect expression of our relatability. And, and then yeah, I mean, I'm just so excited to get into this conversation, but I don't want to like artificially prop it up here. But there is no. I this... think it makes a lot of sense. Why don't you? I I would love to hear you introduce Harry to everyone. Harry Dodge is a sculptor, and is uh, I, I think this is a first time outing, although like so successful that it's hard to hard to square that fact but as a novelist um mm. wrote a book called my meteorite which was published in 2020 and he and I had a chance to talk about it at a book fair so what you're going to hear is a conversation that was sort of initially intended for um I don't know an audience of like 40 or 50 people on zoom um for volume Montreal but it's it's effectively like a perfect sort of it's like we were able to very naturally lift it out of that space into this podcast because it's a conversation about the construction of um, a text that tries to work through sort of the the lived life of an artist who is experiencing grief and cosmic patterning and a kind of like ex experience of material in this case a meteorite as matter as interconnectedness, and I think also very successfully as like metaphor um, and a parallel text for a sculptor. Um, like this is art writing, perhaps that it's most successful. And uh, not that I think this is an artist statement, but in a way, as an extended meditation, I think it could stand in for one. I was listening to the reading, and. I was really struck by this section sort of at the beginning where he goes through essentially some sort of trajectory that maybe we all have of visiting museums and seeing mm -hmm. art. And when you, when you realize that maybe artist is a job or artist is a thing or art is a thing. And so he sort of talks about being young and, you know, visiting Chagall's stained glass windows and not really liking them, but then also seeing his mom's paintings and how she is and is not an artist and why in his mind. Mm -hmm. um, and then the point at which he decides that he's going to be an artist when he's 10 and he, because he's in a museum and he's looking at this red plexiglass box and mm -hmm. thinking like, sort of like how crazy that this could be art. And of course, I want to do this too. Mm -hmm. But what is that box? 
What is that work that he's looking at? Well, it's actually sort of part of the mystery that unfolds across the text, a mystery that he's reluctant to even reconcile within himself. He does end up having connections to at the insistence of friends, because I think he's been talking about this experience of being 10, being met with this incredible object, having a self, you know, revolutionizing experience in that moment around like what it is he's destined to do. Yeah. Um, and I think all of us have some version, maybe not as extreme or um, maybe not one that takes us directly to the studio, but into some mm-hmm. like adjacent part of art making, like, you and I inhabit, but we all have some version of like what that object is, you know? And what you see is just like that object and the question around what it is and do I even want to find out kind of ribbon itself through the book because at some point he's met with the person who can give him that information. And there's like a lot of friction in that moment. Like, do I even want to solidify this erratic experience as a named, you know, object? Maybe not after all. It's like if this if this can remain somehow anonymous, it can still be mine or it can still that's be perfect. Very true. Yeah, that's very true. What is your object? Do you have one? Hmm. I mean, I, I remember very clearly being in grad school with you going down to New York and crying <laughs> openly and <laughs> at pace. I mean, pace doesn't deserve my tears. <laughs> What were you looking at? I don't remember this. Uh, It's a French artist with like a double barrel name. See, I even have a reluctance to associate this moment too closely with with its maker. But but it was like these looming sculptures in a sickly yellow light. They'd been like draped in sheets and they were standing in a room facing either like a vacuum or an air vent. Oh, I just thought I saw death. I mean, it was really like I had to like part sort of supermodels like the Red Sea to get out of that gallery so I could go like hyperventilate on on the streets of Chelsea. It was like such a moment. And I'm mean, oh strangely, you know, I'm talking about something that happened when I was in my 20s, not as a child, but right, right, right. And what's yours? Yeah. What I remember most, or like the thing that I think probably I'm, I'm always trying to look for is this, is maybe the feeling of being in a museum mm-hmm. um, as a way of being able to be alone in public and not looked at. There's yeah. a certain like anonymity to being in a museum that I really uh, love that yeah. I don't experience in other public places. Um, I find it like a huge relief. Everybody's looking at something else so you can look at everybody. You can also mm-hmm. just kind of drift through and mm-hmm. and not do anything, but also feel as though you're sort of being productive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's kind of like a deep, like, uh, like psychic relaxation. I remember that distinctly as a child. <laughs> you were like, more of this, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the self-nullity of being in a museum. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So when I was reading this book, I have to say, this was just the, I, I don't know if I can express like adequately the kind of out of body experience of being in deep relationship with a book, like, you know, Mm. one of those rare reading experiences where you are just like pulled in to the river of a text and very reluctantly coming up for air at the end of the day. And in that reading, I received a message from Harry that I'd like to sort of quote from, but I just to say like seeing this author's name float up on my phone 
as I'm like weeping my way through the final (laughs) section of this book was surreal. It really had this feeling of like, talk about meeting your, your heroes or, um, you know, feeling a certain kind of like ambivalence around, um, connecting with the source of something magic. Like I was, I was nervous suddenly to be actually in communication with this person who'd written this astonishing book. So this is my, my way of saying, please, um, don't just listen to this conversation. Please also read this book. Yeah. Please read me the email. Harry writes, that what he's hoping to do with the reading that we're at that point preparing for is to express what it feels like when I'm in the studio, my ongoing rather idiotic wager. If I'm sweaty and devoted enough in my studio practice, which results in a general inattentiveness, often slightly painful for my loved ones, that the fever I've there invested will be legible later in the sculpture or writing and will finally register as love, deliver love, sculpture as a delivery system for love. Maybe the largest, ghostiest through line of the book is the felt paradox. If everything is utterly interconnected, and I know this with every fiber of my being, always have, how is it possible to feel lonely? That last bit in particular feels like it really gets to what's driving this text is is a a desire that I think you and I know very well um, from being in relation to artists as much as we are sometimes being married to them, that <laughs> there's this, this effort, usually in vain, um, of an artist in the studio trying to kind of account for their absence in other parts of their lives as though it could, it could possibly supplement or complement that which is missing. Yeah. So I've been working on this writing project and it's like, you know, I've been doing the usual spiral of procrastination and self-loathing. Um, and I need, I need to almost somehow like separate myself from the world, particularly the like social world in order to be able to write. And there is definitely a feeling of guilt around that. So is the exchange somehow that what you're producing in the writing is enough to make up for being gone Mm. in order to write it. That's very precisely put. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I will say like there, that's perhaps the most winning quality, like a very frankly realistic depiction of an artist. Yes. An artist working at a certain level, undeniably Harry's, you know, social world is of a certain ilk, but um, Mm. still the kind of work a day, reality of an artist striving to connect, um, to make, to somehow try to communicate out from a place of, I think, tremendous ineffability, uh, the work, I'm not sure, I'm really struggling here to find language for what is like so perfectly encapsulated in this book, but essentially that, that effort to make contact from the inside of a studio, which can feel a bit like, I think, the center of, of, of a meteorite. I've just been so regularly disappointed, I know you have too, by like every effort cinematically and textually <laughs> to embody the life of an artist, um, mm-hmm. I mean, with the exception of like Joyce Carey. And I, I really saw Harry do that successfully with this book. So th- this is my, mm. my major recommendation for it. Mm, that's exciting. I want to hear it. 
Let's go. <laughs> so this is Sky Gooden speaking to Harry Dodge after he reads from my meteorite. Well, welcome everybody. I um, want to thank uh, Volume and Chloe for inviting me. I'm super happy to be here, and um, also to thank you to Sky for deigning to be in conversation with me. I really uh, am excited to talk with you. Um, I'm going to just uh, sort of uh, give you a little background on what I'm going to read, and then I'll just jump right in. Um, I have put together some samples and of a few strains of thought that run through the book because there's a kind of weave, right? And I've sort of lightly, uh, for my ex for my excerpt, sort of lightly focused on matter and sculpture and art life. So just to set things up, the book is loosely structured around a series of coincidences in my life, most of which have to do with my birth family, who I discovered in 2003. And I'm gonna read a little bit about meeting her, my birth mother, our first phone call, but sort of avoid any spoilers there. And the book braids a few other narrative strands too, including my dad's decline and death from dementia with bits of my thinking on machine intelligence, um, which includes my having watched a bunch of films sort of all during the time when I'm making work for a show. Uh, and so these narratives provide a kind of forward linear progression, or so I hope they do. I also describe my journey away from being a sort of misanthropic sort of technophobe. So I'm a matter enthusiast, and in the book, not only is matter marvelous, but it's all interconnected. And the quiet part there is whether or not this interconnectedness could account for the oddest of the coincidences between my birth mother and I. And not only that, but the other quiet part is if everything is interconnected, um, sort of why do I, you know, feel so lonely <laughs> so often? Like, what on earth could be causing such a profound experience of isolation? So that's some of the quiet bits, you know, I think that'll help the excerpts kind of maybe hang together a little. Um, Suffice to say the book, uh, I'm also telling my story of a struggle to get out of the studio and to connect with people, especially new people. Um, all right, I'm just gonna jump in. Here we go. March, 2016. I went to Houston the day after I ordered it. Each person I met, I then told about The Rock. Total strangers. I told them it was coming in the mail from eBay, that it was expensive, that it was from outer space that it had a deep bend in it, had been gooey at some point and then hardened like a piece of chewing gum, but the size of a large dog's head. I made the shape of an invisible dog head by holding my hands into cuppish claw-like shapes in front of me down at waist level for some reason. I never held the invisible dog head near their faces. I told them my rock was handsome, magnetic, and that it had a deep furrow, one total fold, like a hand, like a heart, and made of iron straight from a star. I'm a longtime materialist. In other words, I'm already convinced that nothing is immaterial, that the universe, consciousness, literally everything is a result of the behavior of matter, i.e. mind is computing with meat. A few years ago, I realized that my technophobia, neo-Luddism, was at odds with this materialism, i.e. if matter made humans, why would human invention be extraneous to this proliferating web of cosmic creation? And via a kind of unavoidable long-form extrapolation, I've pressed myself to consider the possibility of machine-born intelligence. How intelligent will matter become? This is how my research began. 2017. Consciousness. How do we define it? How do we recognize it? 
Ray Kurzweil proposes we consider the common distinction made between, say, a morning-after pill and a late-term abortion based on the idea that a fetus might arguably be conscious in contrast to an embryo, days old, which is likely not, and even then would rank below the simplest animal in terms of consciousness. Likewise, he says, we have a lot of trouble with mistreatment of chimpanzees versus, say, grasshoppers or flies. And no one thinks twice at the moment about torturing our computer software, but at the point that the software of the future has the intellectual, emotional, and moral intelligence of biological humans, this will develop into a dreadfully important issue. I'm evidently practicing for this future by watching as many movies as I can find populated with odd, sympathetic AI characters. Ava from Ex Machina, Taros from Interstellar, Wally, Rachel from Blade Runner, and so on and so forth. And yes, it's working. I seem to have cracked open a sense of allegiance, something lambent, just this side of devotion. I've tramped as far as fiction allows, and maybe farther. Everyone's asleep. Not sure what rallies me, but tonight it feels irresistible. I scour cyberspace for movies I haven't seen yet. You hear I'm practicing at this, but I'm disconsolate, turns out, and I'll say just about anything if it means I can go back in. Rehearsal or out-of-control oneric fugue? Are thoughts, as Freud wrote, rehearsal for action? Or are they properly action? Skiers apparently benefit as much from a fussy imaginary run down a particular course as any practice done somatically. I'm spreading. Like mold or some hophead, I slide into these narratives as if they're Kevlar sleeping bags or general night, something that can save me. But there's nowhere to hide. Options then left to us. To hunker or genuflect, or flinch, or blanch, or recoil, or quat, or wobble. And with respect to impact, we might manage aspects, and by affiliation, momentum. But the event has its way with us. As you will see, the event has its way with us by cataclysm or unhurried attrition. 1977. I'm in sixth grade. I forget my blue coat at the park. I forget my new black pencils at home. I set down that shopping bag to examine something at Sears and never pick it up. So my new bracelet, it's gone. I recall nothing of these nullities, seizures, little vacations. The tests I've been given suggest that I'm a genius. That's what people say. Again and again at the school, I'm summoned to offices. Strangers administer tests, try to make some thing of me. I gladly socialize with paper evaluations rather than children but I'm too engrossed in my own mental processes. Found there, I'm lost everywhere else. I appear to be careless, lose things all the time, even things I love. My father, he's big ears, brunette, with jowls remarkable enough that in high school, my friends will dub him the bulldog. I take his tools into nearby fields, a vast abandoned nursery where alone I create partially subterranean forts by repurposing immense voids left by industrial diggers. I lose all his tools scattered earmarks of my animus. My dad says to me, for being so smart, you sure are dumb. Fighting is a pleasure during my childhood, which aside from books and the architectonics of various small shelters is glutted with half Nelsons, bloody noses, body bruises. Maybe the fighting is loneliness, maybe self-possession or both husk to core. Maybe the punches I throw are self-defensive and maybe each of the fists I sustain or entertain, the ones that hurt especially, are a kind of relief, an appraisal, something that helps me know stuff, the shape of me in the world as it is. Winter, 1977. 
My mother, Phyllis, wants to be an artist. She says, I had kids or your father wouldn't let me. I say, don't wait for him. It's women's lib after all. My dad isn't a fascist, not even close, not even authoritarian. I'm sure of this, but I suppose somewhere along the line, they've cut some silent deal about where her time will be spent. Honestly, I'm thinking that she just lists excuses, but doesn't really have any. What do I know? Her paintings dot our house. I love them. Drooping shapes in bright colors, paints laid on thick with a knife and black outlines everywhere done with a round brush. There's always this big wood easel in the basement. We bring it from house to house and also a toolbox full of oil paints, smeared bottles of solvent. It gathers dust, games pile up in front of it. Life, battleship, stratego. Once every two months or so, she takes me to the Art Institute of Chicago. She loves the Monets. For at least a decade, we live in the suburbs near where John Wayne Gacy lived and 33 children died. And we look at the haystacks, repeated, orange, pink, yellow, in different lights, seasons, times of day. There's an enormous painting of water lilies in one of the rooms, a storm of greens shot at with red, white, and black. We look at Seurat and exult in the atomism, many parts to make a whole. The Chagall windows have just been installed, and we take a train downtown past shoeshine stands, navigate grimy escalators, and finally come on the wide steps to the museum, touch the stone lions with yarn mittens, slip around on ice frozen into the shape of yesterday's footsteps. My mother is beautiful. I've always thought that. Water vapor and carbon dioxide molecules hot from her lungs emerge and freeze in a small cloud near her mouth. She has a great nose and a great personality, mischievous, risque, profuse. She wears wigs, some of which I really like, and so sometimes I follow the wrong mom at the grocery store. We wend inside, holding hands, overdrenched in temporary rugs, just to sit in front of these new windows for an hour. Transparent blues, some fish, primitive birds. I don't like the line quality, even then with all the slow looking. Don't ever come to love Chagall. We sit and take them in, the windows followed by a dreary cafeteria lunch. When we're done eating, my mom touches me on the face and says that I am a perfect creature. Later, we beeline toward the front in order to catch the last train home before dark. At the museum, there are Picasso drawings too. A male model, is that Zeus? His cock is a scribble, I notice. There's a zebra, some more fish. The guards are shooing us out. Museum's closed, museum's closed, ma'am. I walk under a huge arch into a different room, a room full of contemporary art. There's a stuffed goat. Then my attention settles on a white plinth topped by a red translucent plexiglass box. This sculpture is so neat, so glowing, so perfect and idiotic that it seems impossible to me that someone has designated it as art. The red box is exactly the same outer dimensions as the white plinth it calls home. Compliant in this regard, polite. A politesse that, because it is so clearly patronizing, is all the more caustic and has the effect of condescension, arrogance, grim and silly complaisance. To me, it is roaring. 14 inches long on every side and maybe not quite that tall, just transparent red plexiglass. I snicker audibly, look around to see if other people can see what I see, which seems to be a joke. Someone has played a joke on the museum someone witty and tender. This is art. I decide I want to be an artist too. I'm 10. February 2016. One thing is, I don't believe I'm my own best friend, my body, my social bones, what's on offer there. Rather, I want my art, these objects, this language, to be my social body. 
I believe the art is a better nexus to the best parts of me, a realer me. I want to stay home and work, let art do all my talking. Not unrelated, I always think that if I put everything into the work to the exclusion of all else, the objects that erupt, pullulate by this practice, a kind of distillation, would accordingly be steeped with a kind of ardor such that they would travel into the world and provide people all the love and company and attention I've there invested. That making alone would somehow be fully satisfying, qualify as social, and that the exhibition as some utterly authentic sort of virtual rendezvous would somehow serve as a thorough modus of loving. In this way, practice alone would assuage loneliness and destructive experiences of isolation. It's a wager I've been nursing for decades. None of this ever seems to work in the way I have planned, and I can't understand why. June 2015, La Creek Campsite 6, Zion National Park, Utah. My son Lenny, who's 10 years old, sharpens a pencil with his small knife. I interrupt his pre-adolescent concentration. Look, baby, at the pink of that in the late afternoon sun, it's like flesh, the flesh of the earth, the meat of the earth, or a steak, or a block of flesh. I observe color first, surface, the matted, torn face of the thing, bright pulsing orange and now pink. These soaring buttes are close, just past the creek, beyond a stand of billowing cottonwoods, which leak prodigious tufts of silky parachute seeds. The air is riffled of this meretricious down, causing us to be able to see the shape of the wind as it attends the valley bottom. Gusts, planar whooshes, slipstreams, and more. I can't help but think of this rock as slabs of blood-soaked, vulnerable body parts laid out to test our moral compasses, our greed. I'm moved by this show of trust. I want to lay hands upon hot rock say the best thing, be right and true and real. I moved every day, all day in places like this, thunderously large. Lenny has taken them in visually, the buttes, but his reply is snipped. <laughs> he doesn't like being told what to think about the geologic presences here, but I can't help test running this. A mild-mannered introduction to a strain of homespun geologic theosophy I've been stirring in solitude for a lifetime. Then he relents. Yeah, he says, I see what you mean. He says it politely because he does and does not know what the hell I'm talking about. I adjust my featherweight folding chair and he finishes the pencil sharpening with a flurry of quick controlled mini strokes right at the tip of the thing. I hear the creak again, uncoordinated soprano trills, a cercerating concatenation of small bells. The natural pool at our site is large enough for both of us standing or sitting. I watch him, my son, I watch the trees. I watch the dense masses of white fluff. I watch the stones ache as the sun careers away for the evening. One bat exits a hole in the rock behind us and flies drunkenly over our camp. I appreciate it as a basic notching into the continuum of disorderly conduct. Hey boss, I think silently, to the insect-like knob of floating flesh as it disappears into the massive, tangled, arboreal crown of willow, aspen, oak, and sycamore. In 1827, botanist Robert Brown was flummoxed by the odd swirling movement of these bizarre microscopic flecks he had found suspended in fluid. Were they alive? He eventually surmised that Brownian motion, as it has come to be known, is the result of atoms careening around randomly. Atoms smash into particles and move them. Atoms crash into other atoms whose paths are altered. Everything is moved by the atomic storm. 
there are many more physical constants than lay people realize. And so it seems that this one ongoing stochastic blizzard introduces chance and the absoluteness of unpredictability to a world that would otherwise just have the appearance of being a cacophony of accidents. And this is important because as Gregory Bateson has said, without the random, there can be no new thing. March, 2016, I walked in back from Houston, greeted the baby and Maggie, and then we, all of us at once, noticed the small box on the front porch. I hauled it into the house and onto our dinner table, held my breath. They watched while I got a knife. There was only the sound of cardboard tearing, and then I retrieved a bowling ball of a thing suffocated in bubble wrap, which appeared to be accompanied by zot, neither invoice nor receipt, no language, remarkably heavy and bandaged like this in a relentless, sad tape job that looked like it had been performed by a mental patient. Maggie backed away, suddenly nervous, pulled Iggy aside by the back of his shirt. I looked at them and back at the thing, unwrapped it while they watched. There it was, an iron glob of gum. It was buzzing, it was glowing, just smaller than a human head, but much heavier, unbelievably heavy for its size. Like it had a different type of gravity that applied to it, an alien gravity might have applied. It was dark gray, but metallic too, and had deep pits lined in black. Gooey, tortuous crevices, folds which were almost penetrated by black and burnished in zigs and snoods, coruscant at its facets or scallops, its outermost convexities, which could have been observed at this point to have been no less vulnerable for being lustrous. It was a turtle from the event horizon, a dog head from Jupiter. All the weight gave two simultaneous and opposite impressions. The impression that it would like to have squirmed away, dropped away maybe, barreled right through the earth and on into the empty blue-black of space, and a kind of stalwart noble servitude unstained by fear. I'm here telling you, it was saying hello. Do you think it's radioactive? Are you sure about this rock? Maggie refused to touch it, pulled Iggy out of the room before relenting just a moment later. Now we all touched it at once, gingerly, guilelessly. We stared. It was beautiful in the most banal and obvious sense of the word. I mean, plainly and strongly seductive, erotic. It did occur to me that it might spy on us or resubstantiate like a compressed foam Jesus into some sort of elephantine cuttlefish overlord. So I didn't know where to keep it overnight. Maggie was astonished. How do you know it's real? She asked several times. I showed her a small card I had finally uncovered, swaddled beneath the meteorite. Maggie read the card. Found 1527, Argentina. Yeah, looks like the colonizing Spaniards came upon a group of people who showed them this field in 1527. I treated the meteorite as I would any guest and lay it on a small red wool coaster like a bed and then got under my own covers to sleep. I dreamed that for the rest of my life, I would reinvest all of the money that came in from selling artwork to purchase more and more pieces of this particular meteorite, the Campo del Cielo. I would spend my life reuniting the fragments and slowly I would become famous, an artist known for this obsession. And when they were all back together, all of the pieces in one room, there would be a sort of Terminator-like rise of the machines via this metallic reunification, a big bang in reverse, this thing I had caused, this thing I knew to do. I would be an agent of divine material chaos, but it wouldn't be a drag. It would be fate. It would be lovely and epic and right like the best heroine, but rather than singly ecstatic, encased in ugly nods, it would be ubiquitously publicly salutary. 
the stress of the world would gather into a point and having become too dense to be supported by the web of our collective desire would whirl into a baby black hole and drop all of the matter of our galaxy through an interstellar poop chute into a teardrop shaped bag of shit which would land in some nature canyon somewhere. It terrestrial intersubjective tension and its more intellectual cousin torsion would then start again so meekly that it might be mistaken for the weak force itself, gravity. It would glow and the magnetic field would start to creep around a new earth in another part of the still observable universe. We'd all die, but our constituent pieces would become other, much cooler stuff. I woke up morning. In the morning, I decided to take the meteorite out of the house, but didn't know how to carry it. I chose a large, clean canvas tote and tried not to walk it around too much as I walked. It was metal, but may as well have been flesh and bone. It was clearly alive to me, an iron creature. On a shelf just above my welder, I let it sit in my studio for three days without looking at it again. But things started to happen. Unbelievable things happened. When the universe, our 14 billion year old universe, was just a baby, say, for the first tens of thousands of years after the Big Bang. Everything was just a field of plasma, an almost homogeneous field of matter, except for the lightest scattering of little tiny quantum density fluctuations, or slightly thicker plasma, called random seeds. Cosmic dust grains started to find each other to stick, and though they were first moved by a type of Brownian motion, the globs, after they had reached a certain size, began to attract each other via their mutual gravity. In this manner, legions of planetesimals formed. Growth compounded. Density created more gravity, which produced more density. And eventually, each random seed grew into a galaxy. Is love a kind of gravity? Affinity. And is the space between people and between objects a sort of meat or matter? Maurice Merleau-Ponty coined the term flesh of the world, which he characterized as a sort of incarnate principle this charged space, a viscous tension between organisms in relation, space we commonly think of as empty. I made a drawing recently in which a caveman is saying, love is very diffuse meat. March 2016. I'm in my studio teaching myself to use a nail gun attached to a compressor. And then I spend a whole day teaching myself to use the wire feed welder. I cobble together a few volumetric shapes, build bases out of steel, and begin to sand the wood so I can paint. I want to finish a bunch of new work to have in the studio for when Jake from the London Gallery arrives for a visit. MOCA Acquisitions Committee is heading over as well. There may be eight weeks out. This looming scenario is obviously distressing. I have other meetings too, people on the way. So I'm at the studio 10 hours a day for about 20 days in a row, unstoppable, hopped up. Just outside my studio door, I do the loudest, dirtiest stuff. Sand, sanding, grinding metal, which screeches like a cow being murdered, and then more sanding. One afternoon, the neighbor lady comes out yelling, I have to live here, you're driving me crazy. I work nights and I'm trying to sleep while you work. She's yelling, she's almost crying, livid, frustrated. She lives 10 fucking feet away from where I'm standing. I'm just standing there, clutching my inert sander, my hair big with sweat and sawdust, long beard, an old Iggy Pop shirt hanging sideways off my aching body. She's blonde around 40, tall and big boned, an awkward beauty with fat lips and wide eyes. She's always smoking up front, wearing a thin robe. She has a skinny boyfriend with a big dick and they're always speaking together in Ukrainian. Right now, she's losing her shit. Why is my studio so close to her bedroom window? How awful. 
I apologize profusely, which surprises her. I can tell, and then I carry everything around the corner to the front of the building and the street, the fast-moving traffic near the mailbox. We never speak again. Years pass. I just read an article about a guy who was caught fucking the tailpipe of his car. Most humans I've ever known are object lovers, more or less. Consider how kids come home with piles of colorful leaves in autumn, dive interestedly into a heap of old buttons, wrestle on the lawn with a large cardboard box. Is there a clear point of inflection beyond which this conduct is considered libidinal? I'm not at all sure this is something to moralize about. My attraction to objects is always already erotic. So the idea that there exists a continuum by which it melds into something categorically sexual or even tender and devoted is uncontroversial. One of the most astonishing things to happen in the almost 14 billion years since the birth of the cosmos is that dumb and lifeless matter has, by its self-organizing capacity or autopoiesis, become conscious. These materials, these tiny parts of the universe have formed strange, powerful collaborations and by this imminent force and by heeding the laws of physics, become self-aware, made mind. Jane Bennett suggests that in this long view, mineral material appears the mover and the shaker, the active power. And the human beings with their much lauded capacity for self-directed action appear as its product. Edward Robert Harrison has written, hydrogen, given enough time, turns into people. Not all Aeonian developments in form and function should be considered to be the result of minerals alone, but rather the sum and effect of an interlinked variety of bodies and forces behaving as a kind of agentic assemblage. This web of pressures, situations, and collisions saturates and produces the cosmos. Along these lines, we're able to reconfigure our understanding of self as something that is not unitary, but is being made each moment by uncountable collisions in a complex open system. In other words, all things, including bodies, are perpetually changing, being formed and affected by the force of every legible and illegible collision, from intestinal bacteria to heritable traits to a cold breeze. And so it might be correct to say that this thing I call myself is actually much more fluid and much larger than I have been schooled to believe. Uh, is the reading portion. Thank you, Harry. What a pleasure to have your voice with this um, text, which I've been in relationship with for the past week. Um, just, I can't tell you, I haven't had a reading experience like this one in a long, long time to feel picked up by the back of the neck and carried through as a friend would um, some of the most intimate, but also sort of fantastical aspects of an artist's life, a personal lived life, in addition to all of that. So I, I'm just grateful for this book and the opportunity to talk to you about it. I wanted to maybe start by talking about the way that you've talked about this book um, as being a meditation on matter, a book about bonding, or say love, and this interweaving or kind of intersection of three related narratives, grief, I think, in a pronounced way, um, both through your mother and your father's deaths, and of course, his uh, prolonged death through dementia. And, and you walk us through that tenderly, um, meeting with and making this tentative relationship with your birth mother. And the third one, what you've called sort of the story of my experiment with solitude and so sociality. And I wanted to pick up on that, um, because through and into this orbits a meteorite. And 
you've talked about that producing kind of a meta narrative. Um, I I think of it as a, a tremendously effective use of metaphor and a real embodiment of art writing as a parallel text. But I would love to have you talk a bit about that meteorite and how it came to you in this form, um, this recurring material image that you've used brilliantly to convey, I think, sculpture. Um, yeah. So I'll leave it maybe there for you to pick up. Great question. Um, thank you. You know, my practice is um, always animated by my confusion, you know, and uh, uh, I, I believe that, you know, I'm going to make better art if I just find the part of this, find some question that I just can't answer, you know. So I work my way through my certainties, you know. I, I'll either take apart a certainty and think, you seem pretty sure about that. What if you press on it and then see where it falls apart? Uh, and that's where I get interested. And um, that's like sort of um, my way now, right? Um, and so I think what happened with, you know, in this moment was I was reading, like I said, some of Hito Sterile and uh, some Rosie Bredotti. And there was this kind of openness to technology. Um, or, or There was a kind of a, a conversation that they were having that I was not having because I was so anti. And um, I thought, I think there's something that I'm not doing yet. There's some thought I'm having that's all dried up and, and kind of uh, uh, calcified. And um, that's not going to make, you know, it's not going to make for good art. And it's not going to make for good thinking. It's not going to make for an interesting life. And so because I trusted these people, you know, and some of the other stuff that they were talking about, um, I was really interested in testing my thought, you know, and, and I thought, well, you got you to gotta think harder, you know, so what is there about this? And at the same time that was happening, I was also, and I have been for years, you know, that kind of weird cognitive dissonance where something doesn't come in because it doesn't already agree with something that's intense in you, you know? So for me, there was this kind of, um, like I said, a, a mis, mis, misanthropy, you know, and, and I kind of like through my childhood, like humans are fucking assholes. They're ruining everything. They're polluting the earth. They make stupid decisions. They can't know themselves, you know, just on and on, just with the mistrust of everything about how stupid fucking people are. And, you know, uh, um, especially all these inventions, you know, to me. And so I had this sort of idealized idea of like doing without that and um, that everything would be better. And I had also diagnosed the social media and, and um, staring at screens as a sort of impoverishment of the senses that was causing a kind of mass depression, all of these things, right? And so, but you know, I had also at the same time always been arguing that humans are continuous with nature, that we are animals, you know, that there's no, there's no um, clear way to uh, describe a human, not, not in terms of as being a natural creature, you know, uh, and, and sort of maintain that some of the problem is that we think that we're, we're not connected, that we're exceptional, right? This exceptionalism, this, this humanism um, related to our brains and our minds and the idea that we're rational can make decisions. Um, so those things didn't match, <laughs> um, mm -hmm. arguing for, for the connection, you know, the, the continuity with nature. Um, in, in other words, uh, 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 there, there would be no nature-culture divide, right? Um, and so when I, you know, set myself this task of, of getting uncertain about technology, uh, that automatically popped in. This other thing that had been sort of bothering me that I, it, was, it also seemed time to answer. And so that's a, a kind of way that, uh, uh, that that sort of characterizes my practice, which is a mm -hmm. practice of question asking, um, but also um, 
answers the question of like how that research um, sort of started. So I, I started to read around. I started to read more about particles. Um, I started to read more about ecosystem. Um, but I also tried to become open to metal <laughs> like in a kind of sculpt sculptor guy way, you know, um, <laughs> like I'd been using plastic, but metal, you know, as, the, as this kind of stereotype of, of what robots are made of or, mm -hmm. or spaceships or, you know, the, the, you know, our computers, this kind of gleaning um, thing, you know. So I started using metal and I started to work with it. And at the same time, uh, a buddy of mine showed me how to weld, which was mm -hmm. amazing. Um, and so it was weird how metal could flow and melt mm -hmm. and uh, uh, it wasn't everything I thought it was. I could, I could cut aluminum in particular with a saw. Mm -hmm. I could drill into steel. These are things I did not know. Um, and so there was a weird way that I was familiarizing myself sculptur sculpturally at the same time I was doing this um, research. And then right away I hit on this idea of um, this intense thing, you know, that matter had made us <laughs> and that it's got stuff it likes to do. And I started to even wonder it must be still doing the stuff that it likes mm -hmm. to do. Am mm -hmm. I am I being ridden by matter, you know, uh, which, which is a little off the point, sorry. But um, anyway, I realized that there were meteorites right around that time that were metal. And so I, and I think I may have been on eBay and I had never ordered anything on eBay, believe it or not, in 2016. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I was looking at minerals, I think, uh, and then suddenly got onto this meteorite track and then realized there were metal meteorites. And so I thought this might be the perfect thing for me to touch and feel. And the fact that metal was natural was like a shock to mm. Dumbling. Um, stuff like that. So all of these things, these kind of blind spots in my thinking were sort of bubbling up at once. Um, so that's how the meteorite, uh, you know, so I was like, I'm going to order this beautiful one, you know. Um, and then it really did arrive. And uh, at the same time that I started to have all these other thoughts about socializing. Um, and it sort of brought a little bit of weird magic. <laughs> There's a passage I didn't read, you know, which is where I got up one morning and it literally told me to write this book. That's right. Right. That's right. Said I'm so open to this cosmic yawp <laughs> that I open my computer and start typing, and I realize that my feet still hurt, you know, the way they do that, the first uh, steps of morning. Um, yeah, and so um, I think I knew right away that that it was it could carry a kind of like you're saying a kind of it was but also could carry a metaphor it was itself uh, but could also carry a metaphor about um, weirdly all all kinds of different things that was thinking yeah. about matter which is that it's amazing you know <laughs> but it's like is a piece of soap you know it's it's not gonna do it. but the fact that this was like it it was legit right came from outer space you know. Um, <laughs> So it had the, this kind of easily uh, um, amazing quality, but then it could also be this, uh, this, uh, this thing that was working metaphorically to link my sculpture practice with my love of matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I, I, just to extend this, maybe I, I also, you know, I'm, I'm so curious to hear you reflect a bit uh, for us on this red plexiglass art object that links up with, you know, uh, the first searing memory of, of being in the presence of art. And we all have a version of this. And this can be a great, you know, dinner conversation among friends in, in art. It's sort of what was that first time that your hair kind of peeled off your neck? And, and then what we get, of course, is the messiness of memory, the attachment of aesthetic 
sort of an orating sense of what a thing was that has been misplaced or misattributed in your mind. Of course, you were, what, 10 years old. And so there won't be this knowledge bank either at that point to contextualize this through. And and then there's information you start to seek out uh, in the later sections of the book through an art historian that once you're met with it, you're almost repelled. You know, you don't want that information, actually, or at least not initially. I wonder if you can talk a bit about like how you saw these. Are these twin forces somehow, one sort of tearing through the sky into your living room? I mean, yes, via eBay. <laughs> the other sort of a, a linchpin in your nascent artist mind um, that echoing can either disturb or comfort. I just wonder if there's there's more you can maybe draw out for us about those two art objects in particular that work through the text. I did link those things. Um, and, you know, what happened was I I had been telling the story to whoever would listen, you know, this red plexiglass box. I, right. I thought of it often. Um, and uh, had, I, I think I had even written to the Art Institute of Chicago about it, like uh, maybe 12 or 15 years ago. It was that important to me. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know, was it a Judd? Was it an Arschwager? What was it? Right. And, um, but no one responded. And um, uh, I think even in those days, it was right when the databases of museums were just starting to be fully um, cataloged, uh, mm -hmm. put, put into a searchable databases in, in, in just such that way. Um, so, mm -hmm. I did. I, I, uh, you know, Amy Silman kept reminding me to write to this guy, Dave Getzey. And um, for some reason, she was like, you got to talk to him. I don't even know why. Still to this day, I don't know why. Mm. You know, twice she told me. And then I realized, oh, he works at the Art Institution. <laughs> I to him. Um, and so it seemed uh, uh, important that I do so. And it's true, just like when I was meeting my birth mother, one thing the real thing comes to, re to to kind of make to absent the thing that you have grown uh, uh, accustomed to. Uh, you've formed an identity around, <laughs> um, and you've formed thoughts around it, and you're sort of devoted to it in that way. And so, while my dad's memory was failing, and while I also started to write about virtual reality and whether or not. Uh, it was ethical, you know, it was ethical or real or, you know, how, how we existed in two places at once <laughs> and, and tried to also evoke imaginary spaces and thought spaces as objects that cause effects. Um, I was at the same time, yes, you're right, not sure I wanted to get this information um, from, from Mr. Getze at the Art Institute of Chicago. And so when he finally did answer me, um, I kept closing the computer, I kept avoiding, which is the same thing I did with, with um, Donnie Malloy, my birth mother. Right. Uh, I avoided it. Uh, and so what was interesting about that was at the end, I, I thought, you know what? One doesn't negate the other. They're both things. They're both real things, right? And this one, this red plexiglass box, is the one that has affected me for you know, four decades or whatever. Um, and the one that's there is like this weird stranger you know, mm -hmm. um, because it's not how I remembered it. But what's weird too, Sky, is that I don't believe him. <laughs> I, I, I still think there's one there that looks like he just didn't find it, right? Right. Like, no, that's not what it looked like. I remember. And uh, so that, yeah, seemed to me to like um, map onto ideas about virtuality uh, mm -hmm. as not immaterial. 
uh, mapped on ideas about the uh, imaginary as a kind of um, the, the thought experiment of thinking of that as a material space as something that is manifest, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then also my dad's dementia, where there's a memory, there's a memory uh, that that's failing. Um, and so, yeah, it was, you know, yes, you're right. Um, those, those things started to talk to each other really hard at the end. In fact, I think the red plexiglass box kind of replaced the meteorite yeah. as, the, as the book wore on. My uh, idea for the book, as soon as I started writing it, was what I thought of as a fugue structure. And I'm not a composer or anything, but the little I know or the, the way I understand that is that uh, an orchestra or some composition starts with a bunch of phrases and instruments and things that repeat. Um, but then in the second part, a couple of things fall away, are replaced by other things while certain things continue. Right, mm -hmm. so we're a little disoriented, but not too disoriented. Um, but something's made new, and then in the third part, the same thing happens more stuff falls away. So then, by the time you get to the end of the composition, um, something total there's a bunch of different things that are now um, going on. That was my idea, and mm -hmm. I did think that I would uh, eventually replace the meteorite with the sculpture. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, it's very effective as, as um as form. And so I wanted to talk to you as well about the kind of sculptural quality of the book itself, which, you know, one of the great um, attributes or qualities of sculpture is that it requires time to take in. And yet that is rarely, if ever, a directed linear appreciation of form. You, you know, as a body in relation to form, you can move around that sculpture any which way. You do a fairly, I mean, I'm I'm impressed that this book feels like that. And, and I think it's the way you're playing with time and also a kind of insistence on the present tense as you're moving us through, you know, 2016, 2003, 2000. I, I'm not sure if you get higher than 2017 or 18, but, you know, more or less uh, the present tense is 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 a currency that carries us through your past and, or a current rather. And I, I wanted to better appreciate sort of how you arrived at its form, its structure and, and how you were trying perhaps to kind of push back against the linearity of writing. Uh, the, 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 the conventions of, of, of yeah. Of or I should say not of writing of reading, right. <laughs> that we sort of don't have an option with reading, but to move from A to B. So, yeah, but it seems like you're playing with that space between A and B in a really inventive way. You know, I am committed to the book being read from front to back. <laughs> and, and I don't want you hopping around. Don't get the wrong idea. <laughs> I, made it, I made it that way for a reason. <laughs> But that said, I think of it like a long sculptural process, you know, and I think of, uh, I think of the book and each of the fragments as a, a component in a, a time sculpture mm -hmm. and that each of those components would have a register and have an affect and have a tone and have a bit of information, a kind of revelation that settles, right? Mm -hmm. There's stuff there, right? And then when we go on, there's something else and it keeps settling. So I guess I think of it as sedimentary. So I know it's a time-based thing and I know I'm putting something in a certain order. So that, that is linear, right? Sure. In some sense, right? But, but that, um, and I heed the rules of reading by uh, working with you uh, readers who go from front to back and go from top to bottom, right? Mm -hmm. So that, having said that, um, 
it's a commitment, but it's also a natural way of being, you know, where I think a lot of things at once. And some of it's, I call in the book, hunch making. But I also am committed to this idea of, um, and it's an art idea, that the thing that's in front of you, by pressuring it into art discourse, by calling it art, um, is now the promise is that it's more than the sum of its parts. You know, mm-hmm. if I if I see a car drive by, it's a car. If I see a car drive by and someone says that's now art, my brain does something totally different, right? Mm-hmm. And that's just by agreement. We we agree to do that for mm-hmm. art, right? And so my sense was with each of these fragments that each of them was a kind of object in a sculpture. So it was carrying information, mm-hmm. um, you know, like. Ray Kurzweil says this about AI, you know, but it was also doing other stuff, <laughs> if that makes sense, you know, mm-hmm. that was more than, it was supposed to be more than, than, than just that, right, the, the relaying of information. And so uh, by the accruing of these objects that were also supposed to be more than the sum of their parts, there was a kind of refer, I, I call it poetics, even though it's art. Um, but in, for me, the word poetics kind of refers to that, this kind of uh, fullness um, of uh, this kind of uh, un- unquantifiable fullness that's coming off a thing that I think is exactly specific. <laughs> it's not approximate. It's not an aura that's kind of there, kind of, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about it's so specific mm-hmm. and so moving and so fluid, so turbulent mm-hmm. that we can't track it. We think it's random. We think it's approximate, but no, it's not is specific and so mm-hmm. that's the idea anyway and so by by throw, by putting those things in a certain order the idea was yeah to not only bring you through a lot of thoughts at once but also do uh interconnectedness in <laughs> my drift like see, see that those things land with each other even if you're not exactly sure why yet you just put them near each other even if you're uncomfortable like i'll put a bucket in a sculpture and it's not supposed to just be a bucket hopefully it's defamiliarized and it becomes something else. Sure. Yeah, I, I really appreciate the the sort of leap motifs of um, cosmic order and patternization that you know bump up against a kind of insistence on um, things falling apart. Um, and as you say, sort of that image of a a planet or a star or a meteorite moving through space, the parts of it are constantly streaming off, or at least in the case of a comet. And so I, I was attracted to some of these quotes um, that you really seamlessly braid through the text. And, and one of them is, I have a hunch that if I fit each of these fragments into the whole, it will make a discrete cipher that later I can decode in order to better know myself. And, oh, sorry, that's not a quote in this case. This is you. The work of reaching for those discrete parts and having some um, perhaps confidence that you can both evoke that patterned cosmic sort of coincidence, too too much coincidence to be mere coincidence feeling about living in this life in, in these bodies of ours. Um, and also kind of insisting on a fairly destabilizing floor on which an artist stands, hopefully and ideally, right, that roiling mind, um, that those things could be in concert and held in balance. Uh, I just, I, I admire it. I, I, I wonder if there's a question in here, except to, to wonder <laughs> how conscious you were of keeping those things in scale with one another. So all of these things, I, I wonder if you, you can just sort of pick up what's useful to yeah. you there. <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely. I think, you know, going back to this idea uh, of, um, well, it's like when you're talking, I'm, 
getting pictures. Like sometimes I just think in shapes so that I'm getting a picture of like two things, you know, which are the written paragraphs, you know, and then this space between them, which I'm talking mm-hmm. about as between people as well. Not only a space between us, but a space that's changing us or a space by which we're changing each other. You know, there's a flow, but it's also itself. Um, not discreet from us, but you know. Um, so the same thing could happen and that's annoying and that's hard. And it's definitely not what we expect weirdly, sometimes when we're reading prose. Um, mm-hmm. prose promises uh, something else often. I mean, not always, but you know what I'm trying to say. There's, there's a kind of convention in prose that we're going to understand something soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to be able to follow you, you know? Um, and so the work of, of, of getting a bunch of prose to um, remind you that it isn't just a block of prose that tells you something sure and done, that it also is supposed to like, emanate out and, and keep echoing um, was one of my jobs. Um, and I think that uh, seeing the word turbulence, you know, um, mm-hmm. turbulence is a word that, and I may be misunderstanding because in, in all these uh, subjects, I'm a lay person, you know, uh, as well. But my understanding of turbulence is it does have a pattern that everyone used to think was, was random. And then via chaos theory and, and sort of like getting more, uh, Getting, thing, getting our measurements sometimes to be more and more and more specific or tracking them, even if the tracking doesn't, uh, even if this science experiment doesn't exactly repeat. If we keep the decimals, we find a different order, one that's uh, aperiodic. Um, and that there's something in turbulence that reflects often some of those kinds of patterns, even though they're not repeating patterns. Mm-hmm. And so that's an alternate uh, way of it's just like a weird thing that happened about knowledge, you know, um, but it has to do with specificity and the magic inside of it, right? So if we, so it's kind of like putting the brakes on the first wanting to categorize or, or have mastery over the first naming, the first layer, put the brakes on that, go further, let the thing, you know, you're tracking it in a, in a, in a more careful way, in a more nuanced way, having, getting the nuance to matter, getting all the differences to matter, and that the, that tracking even though it's hard and uncomfortable and we want to know what's going on and I'm lost, um, that maybe we know more than we think we do if we stick with it. Uh, and, and even if it seems disordered, um, not that that's a bad thing, but even if it seems disordered, um, that there's, there's, there's some other thing that's taking place and it's often uncomfortable, but I think that there's something there. There's something really specific there. Um, that that's itself. It's not translatable. Uh, uh, and it, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I'm even making sense, but, but so I guess I was taking exception to your terms, which are, which is this kind of binary between a kind of cosmic order and, and then things falling apart as a kind of disorder. Um, and I'm trying to say like, I don't know. Well, some of the question in the book say is, 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 is there some other order that, or there's like a, the character of the author, as I'm fond of saying, um, I think wonders uh, whether, whether there's other uh, 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 weird order um, that doesn't look like anything we're familiar with. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I mean, I, it is important to keep a little daylight here between you and uh, the character at, at the center of this book, perhaps. But I wanted to ask, I mean, there's a piece there which feels 
relatable and um, like a concern I think a lot of writers in the contemporary moment are tracking. And uh, so I'll just read this. Um, in the book, you write that you worry you're writing about writing. You write that taking up present events in the present tense has you to your dismay starting at the end. Um, you say, I seem to be the character. I seem to be writing a book about writing a book, which is not what I had intended. So is it a book about writing for you in the end? How are you sitting with this question now? And, and how much maybe truth was there to that concern as it erupted in the book? You know, that, that's a funny question because I just reread the book um, after mm. not having read it for a while. I read it last week. And um, mm. when I read that sentence, I thought, Oh, I don't think I ended up writing a book about writing a book. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I was like, that was a concern. I remember it being a concern because what I did to write the book briefly was when the meteorite told me to write the book, I started to take notes. I pretended I wasn't writing a book and I pretended I was writing a book. So I would tell people, I'm pretending I'm writing a book. And what I would do was to, to, to trick myself into it, I would just take a note at the end of each day, just a little note. And so that's how I could remember who was where. I'd just be like, Joe and Rachel and Donna were at the park, you know. And, um, or I'd say this thing, or I would hear something on the radio and I would just write the note, right? So I did that for a, an entire year until my dad died, mm -hmm. at which point um, I thought it's time to fill out, I call it filling out these notes, right? Mm -hmm. And I never read back through the notes, right? I was trying to do a different experiment, which is don't look at the notes and one, don't censor yourself, but two, uh, don't, I don't know, there was something I wanted to touch it lightly, like it needed to be peripheral to get to do the magic or whatever. I don't know. But every once in a while, I would kind of lightly look at it and put something in a certain order. Everything didn't always go at the end. I'd think, oh, that just happened. Maybe I should put that right under the and then I would like slot it in real quick, like with my eyes kind of half lidded. And so but anyway, I started writing. And then what happened was accidentally, so I thought I'd just be filling out the notes. But then I started to write in the present tense. And I started mm -hmm. writing, today my dad died. And I was like, whoops, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so now there was going to be two things going. And I think it seemed weird. Like, how could I do that? And then I think I soon realized that I was just able to write 2017 going forward. Like, mm -hmm. you know, my dad's dead. I'm waiting for his ashes, you know. And then 2016 is also going forward. My mm -hmm. dad just came to live with me. He's not doing very well, you know. So it was kind of like uh, uh, two, two forward uh, progressions. I, th I thought of them like a horseshoe, like they, they kind of mm -hmm. connected at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, and well, then that sort of solved that concern in some way. Right. I mean, I couldn't help it. And I hope this isn't too in the weeds for um, those who haven't read the book. But I, I wondered if it was, I, I think you've just answered this for me that it wasn't, but um, a kind of exercise around Schrodinger's cat, you know, the, 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 the central... <laughs> <laughs> the sort of at this point kind of hackneyed um, question around. Um, sorry, how would you, would you do? You mind just giving a little summary for people about what that is? The cat is dead and alive in and two alive. different simultaneous um, fates. Yeah, that. I'm gonna be terrible at it, but I'll I'll try and do it really quick. <laughs> this is this idea Schrodinger's idea of of um, it, it's it's indeterminacy. It's basically like. Right. Um, if we put a cat in a box with this like radioactive molecule, we won't know whether the cat died of the radioactive molecule or not until we look in the box. And, and until we look in the box, therefore, the cat is both dead and alive. Exactly. And then at the moment of measurement, this indeterminacy or this bothness stops being bothness and one path gets taken. But it's only when we look, it's only when we measure. So the idea would be if you just took that section of it, that everything's, you know, sort of happening until we like, there's, there's this event that makes it be 
uh, measurable or done or something-ish. Mm -hmm. uh, but then there's other theorists or scientists or uh, theoretical physicists um, who would think, um, who went beyond that, which is like, you look in the box, you see, oh, the cat's dead. Um, I just killed it by looking. But, um, but mm -hmm. that uh, many realities split off from that one. So they call it the wavelength never collapses, right? Um, when we look, we see a dead cat, actually another reality just split off where the cat is still alive, right? Mm -hmm. And then every time there's an event, um, uh, uh, other events shoot out from it. Um, mm -hmm. So that we're seeing only one, it seems certain the cat's fucking dead, but actually in other parallel universes, uh, uh, the cat's still alive, the cat has mm -hmm. orange spots, the cat has a broken leg and, you know, mm -hmm. on and on. So you can think of it as in binaries, splits, which is the way it's written about mostly, but I, I changed it to just be like severals. Yes. Yeah. Well, if, if not on purpose and only in my sort of flawed interpretation, it, it really rippled across that experience of time and, and death in, in the case of um, your father and your mother. Someone wrote on my Facebook wall when I advertised this talk, so I'll quote this. There is a part in that book I always share with my students in my rural town about looking to your own circle of friends rather than to some larger idea of the art world. It's really useful for rethinking provincialism into something more like a circle of intimacy. And I'm guessing provincialism is less of a threat for you in LA than it is for some of us in Canada. But I wonder for a book that is often about striving and about striving for sociability, and often finding yourself frustrated at your own limitations to be so. Um, there's one line that just slays me in this book. I mean, it'll be with me forever, I'm sure, that I fall straight down like rain um, when you're trying to sort of, you know, be horizontal with people. Um, so I guess I want to have a, a, a sort of response from you to that. It, it is is this circle of intimacy that you sketch sort of effectively sketch for us as one that holds you um, in however sometimes ineffectual way um, in terms of your own responsiveness to it or feeling of engagement with it. Um, it something that you would, you would try to uh, encourage or map for, or, or even model for say emerging artists or, or writers. And, and it doesn't have to be even that specific. I, I just wanted to kind of touch on that piece. Yeah, I love this um, question. Um, you know, I, I, I think about the book sometimes and I think, you know, like I made a decision, like I'm going to Wayne's art opening. I don't, I don't write that I saw any paintings. Mm -hmm. you know, I go to this, you know, exhibition. I don't really write. You know, there's very few times when I'll actually address the artwork in the room, you know. Mm -hmm. what, what I tell you is who, who was there <laughs> and maybe what we talked about. Sometimes I, it's just a list, like as if, uh, and, and that was because I um, was interested in writing about the cliffs and the buttes and the natural things as places where my heart explodes, you know, and writing about the parties or the gatherings as places where I'm just more nervous and like, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what to do with these people. They have names, you know, kind mm -hmm. of a thing. So, but anyway, um, you know, um, I think, um, what do I want to say? Oh, then I think you were writing about art as social, um, as, a, as a social um, uh, practice. I don't mean like social practice. I just mean like art is ultimately 
uh, a way, uh, um, if, if I sometimes think of art as like a, a missive from an artist out to the world, mm. try to say something, you know, and if we take it up, if we look, if we respond, that's a, a, a relation. Mm. Um, and, and that uh, it's generous to, to send a missive out and is generous to receive it and, and talk back, you know. Mm. Um, and so that in, in a weird way, it's not in every case that every piece of art functions like that, but I, but I, I tend to think of it that way, you know, um, like, this is what I'm interested in talking to you about. This is what this is my thought, you know, I'm sort of telling the truth about my thought. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, so I was writing about art as social, right. And not directly, but I think I was. And um, uh, uh, so I do actually teach. Um, uh, and so one of the things I do say, and I believe this, it's, it's rare. Like if you're getting into art to make some money or get a big gallery, you know, that's probably not going to happen. Right. Mm -hmm. So because it, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of artists. And the best thing that we do is hang around together and talk to each other and love each other, you know, and think together. And that is satisfying and deep and real mm -hmm. and really important. And I mean, you know, that's, that's like huge that to me, that's what it is, right? That's the practice. That's part of the practice. Mm -hmm. That's part of the, uh, uh the vehicle, uh, that, that's a kind of goal. And, and it did start when I was a kid and when I was younger and read the autobiography of Alice B. Tocos by Gertrude Stein, it, yes, did, I love it happened that. to me right then for some reason, I'm not sure why, but I read it and I was like, mm -hmm. I just need to pay attention to my amazing friends and we'll do that. We'll do this our way and we'll do it now. And we're not going to wait and we'll do it together. Um, and, you know, fingers crossed anything, you know, would happen uh, uh, as far as being able to sustain that. Um, and so when, but then you bring up provincialism mm -hmm. and um, I was in San Francisco then, which is like a mid zone of provincialism. Right. Fair enough. <laughs> Um, it's, it's, uh, it's like a mid zone. And so artists are all different. They all need different things. So to make generalizations wouldn't make any sense at all. But, um, mm -hmm. I think for the time of my life that I was there, that sort of, uh, uh, uh community that we built and it was dancers and it was performers, performance artists. Everyone seemed to have a space in their garage. We were all curating each other and making flyers. You had to put up flyers on posts. Um, and we were all going. And um, it was rich and it was full and it was very, very, uh, there was a lot of love, a lot of laughter, and it was very, very satisfying. Um, and so uh, I would definitely recommend that if, you know, for young artists, for emerging artists, for people that that's real, that's not like a fake place. That's a real place. And that's the pleasure place. And if you lose that, uh, you're not going to have anything, you know, you got to get up in the morning and figure out what your questions are, what you want to make and how to challenge yourself with your questions. Mm -hmm. But you also have to know that, um, uh, uh, that, that a lot of the joy is also gonna come from love and, and being in community together. Mm -hmm. I mean, just to extend that one beat further, cause there is a real kind of like work a day life, uh, day in the life of the artist kind of ticker tape that runs on the bottom of the screen of this book, so to speak. You know, you've got studio visits looming more often than not, <laughs> um, museum acquisitions in the balance, curators' names, of course, artists, book launches, sticky salads with 
colleagues and um, CalArt, you know, all these, you know, totemic and, of course, many names. Um, and so your network is really well represented, um, but it's it's still figured or configured in this book and in a, a really symp- sympathetic way, I think, um, through both striving and community, right? So there's that that sense of peership, absolutely, but then also the precariousness, which even though you're working at a, a quite a high level and the citations really bear that out, there's still that kind of roiling we're not sure <laughs> that informs informs your practice and your day to day. And I just I find it very rare that film, television, or literature encapsulate encapsulates or embodies a contemporary art practice very believably, or in a way that doesn't feel just you know um, horrific and off the mark. And so I just wanted to ask about you know how you envisioned that aspect of the book functioning and and why that workaday uh, aspect was important for you to include and, and also maybe how you got away from worrying about it. I, I would find that that would probably maybe trip you up in, in the sense of what to divulge, what, who to name, what to not say. Um, but, but yeah, just larger picture. How did that piece function for you? Great question. I, I um, have to say that right around the time I started to write the book, my gallery closed. So I was without a representation and um it was just after I had a show there. They closed soon after. And um, so I thought, aspirationally and hopefully, and I didn't put this in the book because it was too vulnerable, that there could be some sort of set of studio visits that would be then like uh, at the end, like, oh, and I'm going to have a show with so-and-so at their plate, you know, um, that there'd be some. So then, so some of that, uh, that, that recording was kind of toward that, right? But then that didn't happen. The book needed to close and that and that gallerist hadn't uh, arisen, right? <laughs> so there's a quiet part is, yeah, David Kordansky comes by. I talked to him about the coincidences about his sister, but, we, you know, I don't say we talked about the art, which we did, of course, a little bit, but the point there was like, you know, th- th- there's the unspoken there, you know? Yeah. And so, and I, I did commit to putting in my worry, my insecurities uh, to a certain extent and trying to also let, young artists know, or whomever, you know, getting this out onto the page, which is, and I don't know how everyone else feels, but you know, it's nerve wracking Mm -hmm. and you're worried and you, you're, you're have imposter syndrome and you have all of these things going. (laughs) And, um, Mm -hmm. you do have these, um, you know, I'm one of my big things is like, I, I I feel confident, but I'm not always sure that I'm legible, you know, that, that, that there's a kind of that. So, that's a weird uh, a dissonance as well, but I did want to create a kind of narrative, a workaday narrative where um, there, there was some, some of that reveal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, not to be too pathetic. So I, to answer your question, I did sort of orchestrate that, you know, and I, it was like, I was nervous about the show, but then everyone showed up and it was good and they liked it, you know, and just to get myself to say, you know, um, the, the, to, to keep that in the back. And, right. and not yet particularly pathetic. Right. Um, so, but yeah, for especially young artists to know, like everyone is, um, you know, uh, has has these ways that they fear runs through. Basically. Yeah, yeah. Answer your question, and then also just this, the idea that we are in the middle of making shows as our parents are dying. Yeah, you know that happens. Like there's a there's a spot in the book where I. I go through this whole thing with my dad. He's falling down. He falls out of his hospital bed or whatever. And then, you know, I say, I leave him there with his caregiver at the hospital and I call Susie. My show has to be done 
you know, in three weeks. And that's, I think, interesting to have written down. I have to say it lands particularly poignantly at a time like this, where we are in the cultural sphere, as in every fucking sphere, breathing living grief um, in some form, however acute um, or however atmospheric. And so for you to kind of draw attention to that subtly as a texture, even as a given, is, is well, deeply felt. Um, and so maybe as a last question, I would put to you, and on that note, um, here we are in 2021, creaking towards 2022. This book was put out in 2020. The week the lockdown started. That's when the book. Oh my God. Okay. So I guess I'm wondering, like, how are you raking over this book, especially you just reread it? Like, how is it sitting with you now? Does it feel like it was written by somebody else? Like, what is that connection or disconnection that you might be experiencing because of this turbulence? Well, uh, going back to something you said that I said, which I also noticed in the rereading, which when I was in the hotel room, like I have these hunches. I'm trying to write this poem that will write itself. I'm trying to catch things from the air and mm. I lift my finger and catch things and add. And I'm hoping it'll be something that I can read later and, and know myself. Right. Mm-hmm. That is part of my practice. You know, there's a there's a like a, a questions and I know the questions, but there's other stuff, too, that I'm uh, trying to open my my suction cups too. So what's weird is I, when I reread it, I could see all kinds of things in, mm. in the book that I, that I definitely couldn't see. And that also even happened when my dad was dying. And I made this uh, a video that I talk about where there's an old man, scientist, talking to a, an HLMI, a human level machine intelligence. Well, that old man, you know, that old, you know, anyway, there's all these things that I could see in the book. Um, and I think that always happens. There's ways that we can look back at our artwork and it's not that it's not at all that it's therapeutic. Um, it's that as we try to uh, uh, direct a reading, if we're really feverish uh, in in whatever it is we're doing, very specific, that as my friend Leslie says, stuff leaks out the side. Our unconscious provides these interesting things that that leak out that we're not tracking, uh, but that a viewer, a critic, someone who's careful, carefully looking, slow looking, as mm-hmm. as uh, you, you said, um, could detect. Sure. Thanks, Harry. Momus the Podcast is edited by Jacob Irish with assistant production from Mitra Shiram. We would like to thank Harry Dodge for his contribution to this season and Volume Montreal for hosting the talk that this episode builds on. A special thanks to those of you who are supporting the podcast. You can find us at patreon.com backslash momusart or contact me directly about making a one-time contribution. Um, Your support, it's just making a crucial difference, everybody. So please consider donating if you aren't already. The money goes directly to our guests, ourselves, our editor. It's a very low overhead to make the magic here and we're grateful (laughs) for any help. to support that effort also you can comment and review and share we don't talk about this aspect enough but that's, there's other ways to support <laughs> us um, and they happen nefariously online um, look us up momus art i'm doing a terrible job of this as usual that's why we don't do this <laughs> <laughs> that sounds sincere <laughs> i know <laughs>